Welcome to the Brain Tools Podcast, where you're going to learn how your brain works and how you can use it to level up your life. It's practical brain science for everyday people. I'm your co-host, Sam, a self-professed neuroscience nerd on a mission to share brain science with the world in words everyone can understand. And I'm Kieran, and I specialize in neuroscience at university and now run a metacognition education startup in Asia. Each episode, you walk away with six new practical brain tools that you can use immediately. No fluff, just the good stuff with a side of banter. Plus, grab our show notes, the research, and tons of other free resources, including guides and classes, just by joining our growing Brain Tools community at braintools.mn.co. Best of all, it's totally free. But for now, the Brain Tools Podcast. Alrighty, and welcome to episode two of uh, the Brain Tools Podcast. My name is Kieran. Uh, your co-host with my main man, Sammy. Sammy, how are you? Very well, very well. Thank you again for having me, as we always do. Excited for today's episode. Yeah, pumped for it. Now, for listeners tuning in, you would have uh, hopefully listened to the first episode where we went into the nuts and bolts of sleep. And so hopefully you got some really practical uh, tips on how to uh, get better sleep based on the latest neuroscience. If you haven't actually seen that episode we're going to actually include it in the description. So I highly recommend you go through because the topic we're going to be speaking about today has some really, really, really clear links. And Sammy, it's pretty timely that we speak about a topic that is pretty close to hearts at the moment, given all that COVID's brought, given the world Mm -hmm. seems like it's, uh, look, not to be too dramatic, in a bit of disarray, well-being. I I 100% hit the nail on the head. I was having a conversation earlier today about well-being with my girlfriend. So it it is topical... It's something that's rising up in importance. You'll notice across workplace, across education, schools, it's kind of on the tips of everyone's tongues. And like you said, it's all, it's all really related to what's happening with the pandemic and, and COVID. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you, mate. Like I, I, I shared, for listeners tuning in, I shared a, a quick story with Sam um, prior today, but I just went for a coffee with a friend uh, and that friend actually was just laid off. And I feel like I myself have been living in a bit of a bubble, like not leaving home and then, now that we we're able to socialize, finding out about how it was done. And for the listeners, I shared this with Sammy and Sammy's reaction was priceless. He was outraged, but basically this person in the company cut 10% of their employees and literally they were sent uh, an email at 1 p.m. for all of those that were leaving that said, hey, you're fired basically. Uh, pack your bags, go. And having a look at the recent stats now, I think what uh, you know, unemployment in Australia is up by 1.8% or something. People are losing their jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, they're losing their loved ones. There's so much ambiguity at the moment. And it doesn't seem like we're even talking about well-being. We're talking about economic outcome, but not actually talking about, hey, how are people going? Yeah, 100%. And they're actually, they're very interlinked. That's the thing. Financial duress is really adding to the well-being situation and the problem that's going on right now. And there's a, there's a phrase in the neuroscience world called uh, the amygdala hijack. And that's what's happening. What's happening is everyone's brains right now have been hijacked by the stress of the situation going on. Mate, that's a, that's a fascinating term. And it's actually so true. Like we're going to obviously talk a little yeah. bit more about the amygdala, its role in obviously emotional regulation and so on. But yeah, mate, I, uh, I feel you. And for listeners going in, I think this is going to be an episode that we're going to get really practical and give you some um, ways to actually improve your well-being because it's something that probably has only got a little bit of a headline act for the past literally 10 to 15 years, if we're honest. Like no one's really spoken about well-being as a term itself mm. and the idea that it is a skill and not just this random airy-fairy thing. Um, and that 100%. becomes so timely, mate, because as my last one, and listeners probably know this with what's going on in the US, like looking at the stuff that happened with George Floyd, 
Twitter being this, uh, I, like literally feels like a wars on Twitter at the moment. Like I don't like oh, looking at it. At all. It's actually it's crazy. Yeah. It's just disgusting. Are you so right? And it's well-being is really a, a direct function of brain inputs. So as you said, it's a skill, it's a habit. It's something you've got to consistently do. It's not something you wake up and suddenly your, your mental health and well-being is just immaculate. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think that's what we're going to raise the question today is how you as individuals can improve your well-being, but also the idea to remember, like people are always saying this phrase at the moment, I want to change the world. In order to change the world, you probably got to change yourself. <laughs> and so um, I think, yeah, classic drop-in hints. Classic. Um, but I think like anything that we do on uh, the Brain Tools podcast, what Sammy and I have done is a, a bunch of research and we deep dive in this for about a couple of weeks and then we basically share and we learn as we go with you. Um, so Sam hasn't seen what I've done and I haven't seen what Sam's done. So we're going to be learning as we go here, but as we always do, I think Albert Einstein sums up pretty well. If you've got 60 minutes to solve a problem, you spend 55 minutes finding it and then five minutes on the solution. I'm kidding. We're obviously going to spend time on the solutions and so on. But um, where we're going to start, I think Sammy is a good place is yeah, there's some main problems with well-being and especially what's going on, which uh, I think is pretty timely. Totally timely. And that's a, that's a great seg into our first Kieran we've got there, which is the brain problems, the brain problems of, of well-being. Um, I think the number one we've got to address is the, the big elephant in the room is just all the uncertainty and ambiguity. And the problem is we're really wired for certain outcomes. It's what the brain prefers. And uncertainty has actually been linked to uh, certain pain areas in the brain lighting up. Because we're an automated uh, prediction machine, when we can't predict the outcome of something, when something's uncertain as COVID is, happens, and we can't actually predict what's coming next, our, our stress center goes on high alert, um, our amygdala, which leads to a whole bunch of problems, which I know you're going to uh, talk to. Yeah, I'm, I seem like I'm such a Debbie Downer. I'm the one like, like to say, <laughs> let's, go, let's go through all the problems about everything that's going on in the world right now. But um, I think some really important ones, and based on what Sam's saying, there are certain areas of the brain that are obviously really clearly associated um, with this whole idea of well-being. And I think what mm. I want to do from a frame perspective for the listeners uh, coming in is to just understand what brain research has actually been done. And funnily enough, these Greeks, mate, these ancient Rome Greeks and so on, all these philosophers, they sort of had it figured out. Um, for those listening in, Aristotle, did a, a fair bit uh, of research and sort of musing over this whole idea of happiness and, and well-being, And he coined two terms, uh, Sammy, to, to give you them, which are hedonia, linked with uh, hedonism, you know, classic. Let's just get out on a, on a bender. Kidding. Have a but, um, <laughs> uh, hedonia, which is basically, as I'm sure listeners yeah. know, is all about pleasure. And this is more yeah. linked with the idea of positive emotion and life satisfaction. It's those instantaneous emotions you feel both positive and negative. And he then looked at a second term, which is something called eudaimonia. Um, which is all about meaning and it's this the idea of one's purpose and growth and Sam and I spoke about this before but like that's a really hard thing to understand like we're talking about Maslow's hierarchy of needs like self-actualization and when you look at the two terms the neuroscience of pleasure versus like the neuroscience of meaning like the neuroscience of meaning how would you even go about <laughs> doing that like crazy what, like, what does that mean what does that mean and it's super interesting that Aristotle himself came to these conclusions you know 2,000 years before neuroscience even existed well ahead of his time as they would say these days in the twitter sphere the man had clout he was a clout machine you know real influencer of his time um and you know what we are going to talk a little bit more down the track about some really practical brain tools but it's super interesting you bring up um that there is this hedonistic side of well-being which a lot of neuroscience research has been done on 
Yeah, you're spot on, mate. That's where all research has actually been done on, which is the idea of positive and negative emotion. And I think as I, I go through it, I'm going to talk about the big thing, which is stress, right? And that stress is the main thing that impacts well-being. And we're obviously um, experiencing lots of stress in different ways. And we're obviously going to go through that. I think the thing that I just want to tell listeners that are probably not from a neuroscience background is just to understand what we're, uh, the frame that we're taking here is just to remember that when all the brain research is done, it is all about relating structure to function. And the whole idea here is it is assumed in all the research that when you have a healthy brain, the structure is fine. Therefore, the function is fine. And the function leads to the behavior that we generate. And think of well-being as a series of actions that you can look at and the behaviors you can look at that we speak about before and why well-being is thought of as a skill. And so all the research we've looked at is what does an unhealthy brain look like when it is not experiencing well-being? And the key thing that impacts structure and function, literally specific areas of the brain, your prefrontal cortex, your amygdala, which we talked about the amygdala hijack, is that whole idea of stress, Um, which is super interesting because like even in education, mate, stress management's not taught at schools. Like literally kids experience stress, they don't know how to deal with it. Or, Or universities or workplaces. And you think like stress is a constant that everyone experiences. And it's something you have to learn to deal with. And we're now being like thrust into the jaws of this big stress monster, which is eating away at our well-being. And we haven't really been equipped with the tools to deal with it, but we will be later on in this episode, hopefully. But no, uh, <laughs> call out. Uh, no, we, we really haven't. And actually, like you mentioned, stress is really has, has really detrimental effects on the brains. Obviously, a little bit of stress uh, is necessary because it's an evolutionary mechanism but too much stress or chronic stress can lead to some really severe repercussions and i know you did a fair bit of research around this kids what did you uh what did you learn about stress yeah learn from the, the first point your point which is super important is that i think stress has a really negative term right like you're so spot on that a little bit of stress is important like hunter gatherer like you know guys you can imagine sammy's beard right now if you can't see it it's beautiful it's elegant. Uh, he looks, looks like Confucius, but hunter-gatherer days, like you probably kind of needed the stress response, right? Can you imagine a tiger yeah. just coming up and being like, hey, what's up? You can eat me. This is fine. Probably not going to work out very well for you. And so that whole idea of you stress becomes really, really important, um, which is beneficial for the whole fight or flight response. But where Would Sammy's you- hit the absolute now, oh, sorry. You stress. Sorry, sorry to stop you. Can you, can you explain that a, a little bit? Yeah, eustress is basically the positive word for stress. So it actually means good stress, oh. quite literally. Um, and good stress is, as we said, beneficial for that fight or flight. So a really good example is that sort of butterfly feeling you get prior to like a, a race uh, in either a marathon uh, yeah. or a sprint. It leads to a, a real clear reflex in behavior. And that's due to cortisol, which is the known right. as the stress, stress hormone, as uh, I'm sure you know, mate, which is all about cortisol release. But as, we've, uh, as we now don't have tigers running around amok and not going to come and get us, this whole idea of this little eustress has actually arguably become not as beneficial as it used to be because we're not in any immediate harm, yet we still have the same physiological responses to yeah. stress that literally won't have the outcome on us. And I think, as you've rightly put, mate, like stress almost perpetuates stress, which I know you did a little bit about. Yeah, it does. Super interesting. I mean, you're right. We're no longer on the savannah, but we've got these evolutionary instincts, these stress responses where we're treating threatening messages on Twitter or Facebook or in our text like it's a line. And it's, and it's really perpetuating that stress. And the problem is we build these contextual cues that teach us when to be stressed via association. That's what the brain does. It's an association creation machine. And when we're creating these stress links, 
is what they are to everyday situations when we're chronically stressed as we are right now, suddenly everything in the world stresses us out because we now have a link to stress and every little action. So if I can talk practically, what I mean is when you're chronically stressed, suddenly you associate stress with all the actions throughout your day. You get an email that increases your stress. A text from someone that's ambiguous increases your stress. When brains are stressed, they go on hyper alert and they seek out negative information. There's some really interesting research done on this by uh, Professor Tally Sharrett um, out of the uh, University College of London. And so what happens is stress eventually perpetuates stress. Mate, that is so true because just to link the research you just did, because this is the really clear mm-hmm. link between the amygdala and the hippocampus. And for those listening in the yep. hippocampus, all about the retent, um, basically long-term memory, what they've actually found when chronic stress, and where let's just assume stress is experienced every single day, this stress becomes learned. So that we found yeah. in a lot of research that hippocampal cells, cortisol, the overexposure of cortisol actually dim- uh, damages your hippocampus cells. So hippocampus is smaller. And what basically happens is the ability to regulate what your hippocampus naturally recalls becomes compromised. So it's this whole idea that once you think negative, you end up with this whole spiral of negativity. For those listening, that idea of rumination. Imagine you're in a really bad patch, that constant negative self-talk that happens throughout. And the imagery that comes back is generally associated with those really negative, sometimes traumatic um, traumatic events. And that's a really clear link with the hippocampus, which your point, mate, makes so much sense now. When you are in a downward spiral, stress perpetuates stress. Stress perpetuates stress. And just like you said with the hippocampus, there's this concept of like you form fear memories and fear associations and fear stress. And so, as you said, I mean, I don't know, I, like the weight of what you just said is incredibly powerful. The part of your brain responsible for learning shrinks. The hippocampus shrinks. But yeah, the fear nuts. center of your brain, the amygdala and the basolateral uh, amygdala particularly grows. So your ability to be stressed increases by being chronically stressed. Yeah, that's crazy, mate. I didn't know that. That's nuts. And and because we're linking in and team, for everyone listening in, like obviously remember that your prefrontal cortex, right? That's called called your CEO of your brain, right? That's the thing that's sort of planning and organizing. It's the ability, it's the boss. But now the boss is getting fired basically (laughs) because the boss no longer has (laughs) control. It's an uprising that the amygdala is basically pushing Mm. and it's taken and it's recruited the hippocampus to creating all these other really important parts in emotional regulation. And so your prefrontal cortex basically says, Hey, this is too much to handle. And it's basically this wall of pressure surmounts so that, yeah, it becomes self-perpetuating. And this is where the clear links are, mate. And we can talk about this topic. Um, I know that in Australia, maybe a week ago, it was all about sort of male suicide in particular, but um, depression, PTSD and mental illnesses is all associated with these compromised um, sort of emotional regulation circuits. Um, And so your ability to regulate those emotions when acute stimuli comes at you is is really tough. And it's no wonder we talk about this idea of negative um, bias effect, like the amount of negative information we consume, we are bombarded with negative information because negative information sells and we seek it out. It's not as if we hear that much good news. And so again, that sort of comes into that that hijack you talk about, the amygdala hijack, where we seek this negative information, um, which becomes a massive, massive issue. You hit the nail on the head. You just, all you have to do for listeners at home, Think about when you turn on the news each night and you were just bombarded with the worst stories each day. And each day, if you keep watching those stories, you're you're perpetuating that narrative in your mind. And that's where this negative bias comes in. And so true, man. Like you you speak to people who watch a lot of news in particular or who've been watching a lot of news. Uh, This was my girlfriend maybe two, three weeks ago. And 
their their whole out view, their whole worldview is much more negative because it's all they've been feeding into their brain. You think about like inputs, like food is like this negative input. There's there's really bad food for their for their mental health. Mate, hardwired for bad news because where there was this, this test done, this news. study, um, yeah. it's called the affective go no go test, and it's for things with negative Ooh. bias uh, affect, which is basically how you look at the glass. You know, the classic yeah. half glass full, half glass empty. And what was really interesting with this whole experiment is basically just say you're the stimuli, you're the person that I'm looking at right now. A prof- yeah. like a person would then show either negative stimuli or positive stimuli as a distractor, mm. and the reaction speed time to the negative stimuli was so far outweighed the positive stuff. Showing them negative stimuli in the corner of their eye is like, wow, I'm going to react a lot quicker to that than something that's positive, right? And it's not even that they're like the weight of, say, the news, we took all the news and there's positive and negative news. It almost, it's not as if, there obviously is more negative news out there, but it almost feels like there's more news out there as well because we're constantly seeking it, um, as you said. And what's super interesting is my last point on this is, people with lower self-esteem and people with higher neuroticism. And for those that are interested, I'm going to post a link in there to something called the big five personalities. Um, And this is the whole idea of the sensitivity to punishment um, as well. And people who are highly neurotic um, have really reduced life satisfaction, really reduced happiness, but this almost compounds the uh, stress one experiences as well. And that whole glass half full, glass half empty um, becomes a massive issue. That's that is ridiculous. I did. I did not know that. Yeah, See? we're learning. We're, <laughs> this learning, is we're learning as we're going. <laughs> Hence why these pauses come. We're literally like, wow, yeah. really, 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 really yeah. interesting. And you, you just heard me learn in real time. Super, super interesting. Um, and I know, mate. As this is my last one, I wanted to ask you because as we move into sort of um, the you know the benefits of moving into well being, loneliness, right? Social isolation, mm. like super timely right now of what's going on and how loneliness is obviously linked. Um, yeah with the idea of um, increased uh, negative emotion that you experience. Yeah, well, that's a hundred percent it. You like hit the nail on the head. And I, I like, I want people listening at home, take this journey with me really quickly. Have you ever had a period in your life where for whatever reason, you disconnected from a lot of the people around you, you were suddenly a lot lonelier. You will notice the massive impact that has on your well-being. Um, and there's a reason for this, right? Like loneliness and social disconnection, has been linked in so many studies to be highly correlated with our sense of well-being because we're, we're social creatures by nature. It's what our brains crave. Some neuroscientists even theorize that the most pleasurable thing to our brain is social engagement and, and interaction. And so when you deprive it of this, such as right now, such as we're experiencing right now where we can't access gyms or activities or social hobbies or we can't go out to restaurants or go out in big groups due to lockdown laws, we're, we're literally putting in this wedge, this well-being wedge in the form of social intervention, intervention and disconnection. And it's, it's a huge problem. And I know I've, I've been feeling it myself uh, a little bit right now. I don't know about you, Kiers. Uh, yeah, let's be vulnerable, hey? Like, absolutely. Uh, like, I, I don't know about you as well, but in Singapore, we've sort of come back in. We've now got groups of five that we can do. Um, and I've always found uh, to share, like, I'm more worried about how I'm now perceived in social situations, the first couple, because I'm so used to being by myself. And it's a really interesting study here by a dude called Kachiopo and Hawkley. And they basically saw uh-huh, that. Kachiopo. Yeah, Kachiopo. 
<laughs> sounds like a bloody mafia member. Um, but he, they basically, in their study, they basically found that there's a lot of behavioral and neural evidence that loneliness increases attention to potential threats, but they also make up yeah. threats. So there's an yeah. association with increased worry about being evaluated negatively. You care a lot more as you've been wow. isolated for a longer period. When you transition back into a social dynamic, you're constantly thinking about how you're being evaluated. Am I being liked? Am I, how am I actually coming across to people? And wow. I felt that even today with the coffee, with a person I have literally been um, known for two years. And I'm mindful of confirmation bias as well. So let's just put that out there. Yep. But it, it sort of fits quite nicely that I was worried. I was like, are they going to like me? Do they? Wow, oh, damn it. I said something stupid. And I literally ruminated on that for five minutes in the cab on the way home being like, why did I say that, you idiot? Wow. That's so true. That's so true. I had, the, I had the exact same thing happen to me. Maybe three or four weeks ago. Hadn't seen friends in about three months. And I remember the first hour we went and, we went and grabbed a dinner with maybe five or six of us. I barely spoke because I was so worried about speaking. And I, I've known these, these, these guys since I was 14. I think your best mates, like literally your best mates. You told me this. Yeah, my best mates. And I was, I like, I literally felt that. I had no idea it was so founded in research. And we are going to get to the practical stuff. So please stick through this. There are some really cool implementations coming up. But this point on loneliness is a big one. And just to wrap up uh, some of the problems before we get into the, the the good stuff, there's actually a direct correlation between social connection and loneliness and longevity. So wow. you think about it, well-being, right? There's the, the blue zones of the world. One of the five or six factors they've identified as contributing to the longevity of those people is social connection at the core of everything they do. And it's the same with, I actually looked at some research recently where they found people who retire as they get older um, are likely to die younger by an average of five to 10 years because they lose those social opportunities that they had at work as well as the movement yeah such mate such interesting implications as well for yeah the older population like well, like we don't really talk about people 60 plus maybe people at nursing homes etc um that are experiencing these high levels of loneliness and and whatnot and there's a lot of research done in that but yeah totally get where you're coming from that the this these problems almost end up perpetuating and become self-fulfilling that more and problems yeah. create barriers to even getting that change and so the way that we want to give you these implement these really key implementation sort of tactics if you will are to overcome those obstacles that end up uh, creating a 110 meter hurdle race with 55 hurdles in it and making sure there's only about five hurdles for you to overcome that's it. We're going to kick down your hurdles. Don't, don't, you, worry, don't you worry about that. Kieran <laughs> that's and I that, had a big <laughs> That's how we would run 110 meter hurdles, mate. Yeah. We would literally just be like, no, nah, I don't want to jump this bike. <laughs> just run straight through it. <laughs> I, I mean, I probably wouldn't even run 110 meters right now. I'm so unfit. But that is a topic for <laughs> another day. Um, been a little bit gloomy, a little bit gloomy with the problems, but I think it's important to know. But I'm really excited to talk about the, the benefits of well-being which uh, segs nicely into the next section, the brain benefits. Alrighty. Uh, so yeah, we talked a lot about the problems, the context of why well-being is important, but there are a lot of benefits to um, protecting your well-being and, and really doing things that can help promote it. And Kieran, I know you did some really fascinating research around this that you were telling me about. I'm really excited to hear what that is. Yeah. So one thing that uh, for those that are keen to read, I'm going to put this in the, the show notes as well, is the whole area of performance psychology. Uh, and there's a book by a dude called Anders Ericsson. These are, I think he's Swedish. Um, yes. Peak. 
Good old Pete. Pete. Um, and we'll be, talk, we'll be talking about deliberate practice uh, in, I think, uh, a couple of episodes as well. A couple of episodes. Be really exciting. Um, yeah. But yeah, the whole idea of the optimal stress curve. Um, and I know viewers, uh, viewers slash listeners, you can't see this, but I will put this uh, picture below, but I'm showing Sammy right now that basically, if you can imagine a graph you've got on your y-axis performance, so from zero to 100, performing well or not performing, and then the level mm-hmm. of amount of stress on your x-axis. Basically what it shows, and I'm so sorry to bring up PTSD with math team, but uh, in inverted parabola. So imagine a U and oh. turn that U upside down. Sammy, you hate me, but turn it upside down. All I basically want to say oh. to you all, is that yeah? I know you hate me. Oh, come on! Don't do this to me. Don't hate me this much. <laughs> I'm, I'm just I'm just messing with you. <laughs> I know, mate. But basically, there's the optimal stress curve, which basically says yeah. optimal stress is somewhere in the middle, as it normally always yeah. is. But if you go, if you get experience too much stress, you go to a complete meltdown, or what we call the zone of breakdown. And if you go to the idea of no stress whatsoever, so again, giving credence to having a little bit of stress is important. You've got the zone of uh, nothing, which is where boredom and depression basically come through. And so our ability to experience more positive emotion in our life and have that clearly means that we're more likely to perform at our peak. And I think that's a really important thing to note when we're talking about people in all these high-performing roles and there's obviously a lot of pressure to perform. That balance between that positive and negative emotion is really important. And Sammy, I know you've obviously looked at this in terms of memory, but how negative... Um, yeah, negative sort of emotion impacts memory as well in terms of peak performance in especially cognitive and learning and knowledge-based work. Well, it, it does as well. And that, I mean, that's why like we have to say stress isn't all bad. There's a reason we have a stress response. It's really important from an evolutionary standpoint. But there was actually some uh, recent research, which, listen up, listeners, this is really fascinating stuff. Acute stress, which is just a little bit of stress. It's, it's acutey stress, acute stress can be uh, really, really helpful for study because it actually activates, uh, basically activates your attention and focuses the brain on the stimuli or the input or the article or the learning you're currently doing and improves learning outcomes. It improves your ability to encode that uh, in, into your memory, into your hippocampus. And it's only a little bit of stress, but it's been uh, recently, um, the studies have shown that it's been really good for elevating performance of learning and even performance at work by helping focus your attention. Yeah, It's like the Goldilocks effect, isn't it? Right. It's like, just yeah. right. It's just like right. making sure yeah. that there's really clear ways that you can manage that, that positive and negative emotion, um, which is yeah, really super important. And I think as we round off this benefits, I think let's be frank, Sam, and for the listeners, like I, I think it's pretty obvious, right? Stevie Wonder could see this, that basically if you literally have great, <laughs> more positive emotion in your life, that obviously leads to greater yeah. well-being. That's and like, let's be frank. That's there's it. always going to be a minimum amount of um, negative emotion in your life. It's always going to happen. We can't sit here and be like, you're going to experience 100% positivity because it's just not not possible. Um, no. But knowing how to modulate and regulate yourself um, becomes really important. Absolutely, absolutely. And I mean, we, yeah, we don't really have to, like you said, harp on about it. The, the benefits of well-being, well, you know, happiness, satisfaction, meaning, eudonia, eudonia. All the above. Live longer. <laughs> <laughs> and you live longer. All right. Um, now that we've talked about the benefits, let's let's get to what you all came for. Time to talk about the brain tools. <laughs> oh. Alrighty team, now we get to everyone's favorite uh, section, which is all about 
implementation. Let's get some real practical things that you can use literally after this particular uh, podcast you listen to, um, to make your life a lot better with obviously this idea of well-being. And the context I want to provide here, um, which Sam and I are going to delve into in actually heaps of detail in the next couple of episodes, is this whole idea of neuroplasticity. Um, and all the tips that yeah. we're giving you right now um, comes from this idea of neuroplasticity. Very simply, the brain can, brain can change itself. And that's a really yeah. important thing to remember because remember, structure linked to function. If you change the structure, you change the function. And the key thing to remember about this is um, if we are able to put things in place, habits and actions, the feedback loop it has to the brain is super, super important in changing it um, over a period of time as we spoke about. And so, um, Sammy, I'm going to go to you as we always do, play a little bit of uh, tennis uh, with you. Three uh, clear t- uh, implementations for you. What's your first one for, uh, for the audience? Super excited. Uh, picked up the rally. And my first one, <laughs> rally over the net. You can't see me at home, but I just rallied to Kieran. The number one thing for well-being, for protecting your well-being that you can do right away today is a daily gratitude practice. And like you've probably heard about this, listeners at home, because it's espoused almost everywhere. Everyone talks about it, but this is one way to look at it. Write down three things you're grateful for every day for 21 days in a row. And they actually did some research around this, writing down something you're grateful for uh, every day for 21 days in a row, significantly increased levels of optimism, which held for six months. So 21 days practice, six months of benefits. And it's crazy. Like that's crazy to me that such little practice can have such massive benefits. And here's what actually happens, right? When you practice gratitude, you are wiring into your brain an optimism bias. By being thankful and grateful for the things in your life, you're teaching your brain to look out for opportunities to be thankful and grateful for things. So by practicing it every day, your brain is learning to become optimistic by looking for for things that are happening in your life that it's appreciative of, which is really crazy. And they even did um, some research looking at the, the pathways of this as well, the neural pathways and what happened is people who practiced gratitude, the, the pathways associated with gratitude, um, especially specifically in the reward center of the brain, imagined they, they grew. They grew. That's you crazy. grow your That's brain. You, you grow your ability to be optimistic just through a daily gratitude practice. And it's, it's like so, it's so small. It's, it's so, so, so small, right? All you have to do is... Each morning you wake up or night, just write down a few things you're grateful for and reflect on them. Um, and the research would suggest, you know, 21 days as kind of the barometer. But the more you practice it, the better you're going to strengthen that gratitude skill. Yeah, and I love that idea of the challenge, mate. I think that's something we're going to get the listeners involved. We'll probably end up choosing about sort of 10, 20 people, do a, a gratitude challenge for, you know, 21, 30 days um, within the community, which would be amazing to do. I don't know what you think, but I'd be so keen to do that. I'd be, I'd be super, super keen to do that. I like, I mean, aside from sleep, gratitude is the one thing that comes up often in the research with many neuroscientists saying like day to day, it couldn't be clearer what you should do to improve your well-being, and it's just cultivate gratitude. Like yeah, the, the effects are profound and long lasting. But Sammy, can I ask you just uh, off yeah. the cuff? Um, yeah. let's, get, uh, let's practice this right now. Can I ask, what's one thing you're grateful for out of interest right now? Uh, Kieran, I'm, I'm really grateful for this podcast. I'm, I'm oh, grateful for shucks. Kieran. 
I'm also grateful for these new microphones, which listeners, <laughs> it is hopefully sound crisp and beautiful. Um, so very grateful for that. What about you, Kieran? What are you? What are three things you're grateful for? Mate, right back at you. I think the fact that we're even just doing this conversation is pretty amazing. Like, I know, like we're just doing, we're on episode two and we've obviously got heaps and heaps in the pipeline, which is really exciting, but just doing this and learning on the go is pretty awesome. And I think that's what I'm massively grateful for is the fact that we get to learn. Like we're learning right now stuff that we didn't even know we knew um, from each other, which I think is awesome. And then being able to share it with the listeners um, is, is pretty cool, mate, if I can be honest with you. Um, please be honest with me. I love it. I'm, I'm grateful for that. Uh, and for listeners, just to wrap it, wrap that up, daily gratitude practice. That's my first brain tool. Uh, over to you, Kieran. I know you've got some really fascinating ones to share. Yeah. So my, my first one uh, is first and foremost, understanding uh, the difference between your symptoms and the cause. And what I mean by that is I think everyone has uh, a unique set of stress symptoms. And what I would coin this as is when you have a, something that stresses you out. So let's just say, again, you lose a job or uh, someone makes you angry. There's obviously that emotional and visceral response that occurs. But particularly when it comes to chronic stress, there are really clear patterns of behavior that, that humans uh, indulge in, which is some are like a loss of appetite. Some people can't sleep. Some people can't focus. Some people lose motivation. And so the question I pose to all the listeners right here, right now, what are your symptoms of stress? When you get stressed, what actually does that look like? If Imagine if you were painting me a picture. Now, to share with all the listeners, when I get stressed, I lose all motivation. I really struggle to sleep. Like I will like literally toss and turn, which is obviously timely given um, episode one, we talked about the idea of breathing exercises and meditation and things like that as well. Um, but, but also I go, I become a loner. Like I literally isolate myself. I don't like to be around people. And so I think the moment you can understand and have a degree of self-awareness as to what stress looks like for you, um, is the moment you are able then to actually tackle the stress and understand what might be causing that stress. And so that's my really sort of hopefully practical idea is let's understand what are your stress symptoms, how to do that. So I mean, I'll, I'll put this over to you in a second is why we've actually together, Sam and I created a bit of a checklist for you, which we're going to put into uh, the show notes as well um, around stress symptoms. But what we actually recommend is complete that stress checklist, have a bit of a self-reflection piece of five to 10 minutes and be like, Hey, what does my stress actually look like? And what I'd also do is ask your family and friends, um, I asked my mum and dad the other day, I was because um, I've been speaking to them a fair bit recently, given all that COVID-19. I said, hey, mum, dad, when I get stressed, what do I normally do? And it was really revealing. Like, it's like basically having a mirror to you. And they said, Kieran, you become the nightmare. <laughs> you are the worst person to be around. But I didn't, I didn't actually, I know, burn, literally just roasting yeah. me. But they, they mentioned, Rough. they noticed, they noticed this loss of appetite. And I'm a diabetic, right? So I need yeah. to be mindful of it. But I just literally wouldn't go to the pantry. And I think having that idea of a mirror and speaking to your friends about what your stress symptoms could be is really useful. And then finally, Sam, I know that on your wall on your left-hand side, you've got reminders um, of things that you want to achieve this year. In the same vein, if it's in front of you, you're more likely to pay attention to it. Once you've understood what your stress symptoms might be, put reminders up yep. in your workspaces. Not saying yep. I am stressed when I do this, but just say, hey, pose it as a question. Put there, am I eating enough? Or am I feeling a low motivation? Just these mental cues, reminders, and questions increase the probability of you recognizing that you are stressed and being able to zoom out and say, hey, I might need to do something about it. So I wrap that up by saying, understand your stress symptoms and do that self-reflection so that you can solve, um, solve what those stress are, what might be causing that stress. I love it. I love it. Understand your cues, so to speak, which links really well to your next one. But 
we won't talk about that just yet because that's coming up. I um I actually have a, a, a brain mentor who's teaching me some things about neuroscience. And one of the things he does is he prints out a poster of these five triggers for the amygdala and just puts the words on the wall in big font. So he's got entrapment, concern, uh, fear, uncertainty, uh, and one other. And he just looks at it every day. And he knows if he's feeling any of those things, if those things are happening in, in what he's doing, then that's a sign that he's going to be triggering stress. So maybe that's one way to do it. Great. That's a great line, Kieran. Thanks. Thanks, mate. Try my best, yeah. I, like <laughs> yeah. I hadn't actually thought about that. Figure out when, you, when you're stressed. It sounds simple. Simple, hopefully effective. I'll pass to you for your second one. Oh, excited. Beautiful. My second one is about well-being over time. And I'm going to give it to you like this. Learn how to become more like a little kid. And you think about little kids, right? Mm. I think about my nephew, Will, who's two years old. His well-being's pretty good for the better part. <laughs> <You know? laughs> he's, he's hilarious. He's outgoing, gregarious. He's lovely little kid. But he's not sitting around being stressed all day. Um, and that's because little kids do these three things which have, have been proven to benefit uh, well-being in the long run. Uh, and I'll run through those really quickly. First thing little kids do is they do things that get them into their body more frequently. And so the one I would recommend is walk around and touch things because what actually happens is when you get into your body, you effectively get out of your mind. So as you're walking around and the way I do it is I take my shoes off and just walk outside. As you're walking around, as you're touching things, you change resources in the brain and shift them to sensory focuses. So it moves to the different parts of the brain, the parietal lobe, the temporal lobe, occipital lobe, and you really focus on those senses, senses, and so the resources for the, the fear response have been pulled away. And so you naturally start to calm down a little bit because your brain is literally pulling away um, its energy from that emotional fear response. So number one, do things that get you in your body. Number two, play. Play. Such a good boy, mate. Play. Learn to have fun, play. right? Learn to have play. fun, right? I, I think adults suck at this. I think teenagers are okay at this and kids are pretty great at this. But it comes down to the fact that the, the brain loves social interaction, engagement, and it likes to do things that are pleasurable and things that reward it in ways that aren't you know, overly complicated. So doing things where you can take some time away from your screen, getting into your body like a little kid does, but then playing and bring you joys will flood your brain with a whole bunch of different neurotransmitters which promote well-being. We're talking, you know, epinephrine, serotonin, uh, if it's with another person, oxytocin. All these things are neuroprotective and they are also really, really beneficial for your overall well-being. Um, they have the, all these beneficial effects on, on the way you process information. So just playing is the second part. And the third part of learning to become like a little kid uh, is a media diet. You think about little kids and how much news they watch and it's almost zero. It's almost zero, right? I've never seen a little kid sit down and watch the six o'clock every night. So reducing your news intake by 10 to 15 minutes a day um, to 10 to 15 minutes a day, my apologies, reduces those stressful inputs. And you, you protect well-being by reducing the amount of negativity coming in. 
So that's my, my second brain tool is learn to become like a little kid, get in your body, play daily and, and don't watch as much news. Be like a little kid. I love it, mate. I think that's super practical as well because it's almost like that idea, right? Like I'm not, I'm not having a crack at people who do this because we all do this sometimes, but sometimes we just take life too seriously. Um, yeah. and, and having that idea of that mixture of, you know, ha- having some fun and, and playing becomes really, really important. Um, and I love that whole idea of being a little kid, like just, you see, you see it match and mirror a little kid. Yep. That's it. Right. Just go do things that, I mean, if like we all took out five minutes a day to act like a little kid, we'd probably all feel a lot better. I love it. That is so good. What, uh, what's your next one? I know we alluded to it before, but, uh, what have you got? Uh, so Sammy, my, a question for you, if I can ask. Yeah. Have you read, uh, the power of habit by Charles Duhigg? I, I have read bits of it. I won't lie to you. I have only read. <laughs> you sound like I'm about to punish you. I'm not going to punish you, but what I will ask, I'm sure listeners may or may not have heard is Paul surprise when Charles Duhigg to going in and doing a bit of a deep dive into the power of habit. Um, the premise of the book yeah. basically being that we are a collection. We are what we do. And therefore excellence is, uh, uh, a habit, not necessarily an act, uh, to quote William Durant. Mm. My question for you then becomes, have you heard of Keystone Habits by any chance? I haven't, Kieran. Please uh, enlighten me. I'm ready. Okay. So Keystone Habits, basically, in the book, uh, and I really resonate with this, is that Charles basically says that there are one or two habits. Again, we always provide the, uh, apply the Pareto's principle. Those one or two habits that are responsible for getting all your other habits right. And that's what we call the keystone habit. So for many people, that could be exercise. If you get exercise right, you end up eating better. You end up uh, actually spending more time with your family. You end up doing uh, this, uh, all the positive sort of routines that lead to more positive emotion uh, in your life. And so my sort of number two, if you will, for people that are listening is asking you the question, what is your keystone habit? What is your keystone habit that if you get right, all other things, generally speaking, take place to itself. And it is literally like a power law distribution. And what I mean by that is that one thing will be responsible for 10, 11 other things that you do. And I've got four really key ones that I want to sort of zero down on. I'm not going to go into too much detail because we're actually going to have individual episodes for each of these things to help you out with it. Yeah. But they're four. Sammy, if I can share these four with you. Go on. What four have you got? First one, exercise. Now, exercise, we've gone and spoke about it to death uh, in sleep where exercise and Sam was Sam, one of Sam's tips where he said exercising in the morning, getting that sunlight can be really important to getting a good night's sleep, but aerobic exercise has been shown to increase or change the serotonin, serotonin sort of circuits in your brain, which are always at the end of aerobic exercise. You always feel that like nice sort of clear head. Uh, I don't know about oh, you yeah. saying that's definitely the for me. Why become, yeah. Runner's high. That's exactly what it is. Mm-hmm. Spot on. Um, and that aerobic exercise becomes really important. So my question is, is that your keystone habit? If it is, if you get that right, does everything else follow through? And just for context, when we were doing our research, Sammy and I, the one that was really researched into well-being was exercise. Like legitimately mm-hmm. from a physical, like the physical and mental um, relationship between exercise becomes really, really important. And I think that's not yeah. news to anyone, uh, but a really, really key one. The second one, mindfulness meditation. Now, um, this was also one of the, probably the second most popular thing that was researched and a lot of research going into the idea that focused attention on the breath increases gray matter in the prefrontal cortex. Remember the CEO, getting the CEO right, really responsible for a lot of emotional regulation and how you actually are able to do that. 
mindfulness meditation is really interesting. Um, and Sammy, I don't know if I ever told you this, but for context, I did um, uh, sort of a little mini thesis on um, brain games, brain training games, like Lumosity and stuff. And Ooh, what we basically found, yeah, what we found is the research showed that you got good at the task itself, but that wasn't allowing to transfer into other aspects of your life. But in meditation yeah. or mindfulness, there is a bunch of growing research that shows there are far transfer effects of meditation, particularly when it comes to your attention. Now, focusing on your breath can have far transfer effects on your attention in any task that you actually look at, which becomes a really yeah. interesting thing that we're going to have a whole episode about, I think, in about eight or nine times. Yeah, I love it. That's so powerful. You're totally right. You're totally right. And that actually is going to allude to my last point. So like keystone habits, exercise, meditation, mindfulness, anything else? Yeah, mate. My last two, not going to go in much detail. Diet, think about yep. the idea of a relationship between uh, your gut and your brain uh, and probiotics that you should take. And then being in nature. Um, they did a study in the, um, in the UK, 120 minutes a week in short bursts, just going outside um, was shown to improve well-being. Uh, self-reported, so mind the limitation, but uh, in these people, but the sample size was 20,000 people. So being in nature, going for walks, getting outside um, is really, really important. Um, and that wraps up my reviewing your keystone habits. Find it, double down nice. on it, do everything you can to get it done and yeah. everything else will follow through. Get that one habit, that one keystone habit. Love it. That's super powerful. And I never thought about it like that. And you alluded to what my last one is. And this is about well-being in the moment. We all have those moments. Listeners, you've probably had these moments yourselves. Uh, when you just get really stressed, hyper-stressed, a whole bunch of negative things goes wrong and you fall down the hole of rumination. Uh, my friend used to say, call it spiraling. You spiral down this negativity hole and you just keep circling and circling. Yeah, you had that happen? Had that happen? I've had that happen a couple of I've times. Had, oh, rumination, absolutely. All the time. Um, and the, the one thing you can do and the one brain tool, brain tool I want to give you for this is uh, deep breathing. Like I know people say take a breath, but I'm going to give you a specific breathing technique used by Navy SEALs called the box breath. Ooh, hello. And it's really specific. Breathe in for four seconds. Hold for four seconds. Breathe out for four seconds and hold for four seconds. And you keep repeating that. So it's a box, a four seconds box. Why is breathing the number one thing that I would recommend for the in the moment, because when you breathe in deeply and exhale slowly, there's an emphasis on exhaling. You actually stimulate the vagus nerve, which is runs from your stomach to your brain. It's basically like a wire signal, which has this gut brain connection. And what it does is when you breathe in slowly, it, it, tr it, it turns your stress response off because it's a, a bit like this. Your, your sympathetic, sympathetic nervous system, um, gets turned off for the parasympathetic uh it's like this right if when we were evolving if you were breathing deeply in the wild there's almost zero percent chance you were being chased by a predator so this deep breath response is wired into us as a way of telling the brain hey it's all good we're breathing deeply <laughs> we're, we're relaxing and so there has been a, a slew I'm, I'm joking about this uh, but there has been a slew of research around this vagal nerve stimulation from deep breathing, like instantly, almost instantly decreasing cortisol secretion, which is the stress hormone and bringing about a sense of calm. And that's why they say, you know, take a breath. They take a breath and mean it. So my last brain tool, 
super practical. Try the box breath. If you're really stressed out, just sit there and breathe. Four in, hold for four, four out, hold for four. And just keep doing that until your brain switches from sympathetic to parasympathetic and you just calm down. That's uh, my last one. I love it, mate. And like for listeners coming in, that's a total of 12 seconds, basically. 12, 16 seconds. 12, 16 seconds. And you've gone away, gone a long way to improving your well-being, particularly in that moment, which um, is super practical, Sam. Literally the easiest thing you possibly do is breathe. (laughs) Is just breathe. That's that's all you got to do. Love it. So that's my last brain tool to wrap it up. Kiz, what have you got? Take us home strong. I'm ready. And you uh, alluded to it when you talked about the idea of being a kid is that whole idea of a a sort of media cleanse. My third one for everyone is technological cleanse. Um, Cleansing yourself of all the technology. Now, we can be really honest with each other. Everyone, we're cyborgs. We've got a phone glued to our hand all the time. We're so dependent upon it. Um, And I think we've got to be really mindful of the information that we consume because you could argue that we live in an era with Google that the quantity of information is huge. But the quality of information, not necessarily as good. And so as we've spoken about throughout this, we're fed so much negative information and we don't even realize it. And it plays into that idea of the negative affective bias. So to get really, really practical, um, Cal Newport, one of my favorite humans, um, basically the whole idea of deep work, had a few different books that's come out. He recommends a social media audit. Um, particularly. And what he basically says are three very simple questions that I'm going to pose to you, Sam, and I'm going to pose to the audience. Which apps do you use most? Which apps do you actually use the most? What do you do when you're actually on them? And what's the ROI? And that last question is, I think, huge. What's the actual ROI, return on investment, of you using that app? And I'm going to put my hand up and say Instagram, for me, is such a low ROI thing, but I'm glued to it. I literally will just go through it, and I'll be honest, I look at hot people, do you, Frank? And I look at famous people. I don't actively engage with it. So people may be earning money off it. I don't, but I'll spend, I looked at it, I spend about three to four hours a week on it and I'm not getting any bang for my back from that, right? So that's four hours of wasted time. And so the ROI is really low on that for me. And so I push people to understand what apps are actually giving you value, are actually making your life better. And if they aren't making your life better, out of sight, out of mind, removing them first from your phone as an app is a really crucial step. Um, using sort of app blockers like freedom and um, sort of self-control can be really useful. Um, And then, yeah, double downing on the ones that you do use. And so that's one I want to end off is just technological cleanse, uh, taking time out from it. I'm now only on Instagram was our last one. And I think I'm going to get rid of it, Sammy, I think in the next couple of weeks. Oh, big news, big news for listeners out there, Kieran uh, is an Instagram fiend for lack of a better (laughs) word, but uh, super powerful. Yeah. Technology cleanse. You feel it too. If you've ever had a day or two where you couldn't use your phone, like for some reason, what's well, actually a brain reason, you just feel more at peace. You don't have that constant ping of dopamine and the notifications. I love it. Super practical. Super practical. Thanks, mate. So good by you. Six of the best, hopefully. <laughs> six of the best. Awesome. All right. Well, let's, um, let's wrap those six up. Uh, I'll give my, my three first and then we'll hear from yours and then we'll, uh, we'll get the show on the road. So my three, four listeners, a daily gratitude practice. Number one, for long-term well-being, learn to be a little kid, learn to play, learn to go and touch things and get outside and move your body and have fun. And number three was short-term, if you're really stressed, practice some box breathing. Four breaths in, hold four breaths, out four, 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 four. How about you? What's your three? 
My three, one, understand your stress symptoms. Actually know what happens when you're stressed and remind yourself of that so you can understand the cause. The second is find your keystone habit, that one habit that if you do every day leads to all the other habits taking place. And my final one is the technological cleanse. Which apps actually give you value in your life and make it better? If they don't make it better, see you later. If they do, obviously keep them. Love it. Super practical. And Pareto principle, we're always going to do this at the end. 80-20, what's the, the 20% that would bring you the 80% of the results? Yeah, for me, team, I think it's that, that keystone habit, like literally yep. aligning with that. Find it, double down on it, and do everything you can and be ruthless in getting it done. Love it. For me, it's got to be the daily gratitude practice. The day I started implementing this, I just felt better from like almost all day. I smiled like a little kid. Daily gratitude practice. Rewire your brain for optimism. All right, that's all we have for you this week. Super excited uh, for the next episode, which is going to be on... Yeah, I don't know, mate. <laughs> I can't remember. It's going to be on fear. It's going to be on fear, guys. <laughs> Obviously, Kieran has done a lot of work preparing for <laughs> So it should be a good one. Oh, I'm the worst. Sorry, guys. <laughs> um, yeah, look, we've done a lot of research, as you can. Uh, yeah, next episode, here. Thanks. Thanks for joining us. Episode two of Brain Tools. <laughs> See you, guys. <laughs> oh, great. Oh, <laughs> Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Brain Tools. We've got three quick things to hit you with before you go. One, if you want to hear other Brain Tools, you can find our other episodes at the link below and on all podcasting platforms. Number two, if you like this episode, then give us a review on iTunes or Spotify only if it's above four stars. And number three, you can go ahead and join the braintools.mn.co community where we'll post a complete brain guide based on this episode, plus a ton of other resources. Best of all, it is completely free. Cannot wait to see you next episode. And until then, bye for now. See you next episode.